0: Today, the RLS boys share seven frequently asked questions clients have posed. Stay tuned as we give our answers right now on the Retirement Lifestyle Show.
1: Welcome. You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Show with Roshan Lungani, Eric Olson, and Adrian Nicholson. This show is an exploration of ideas to help you work toward your ideal retirement. Get ready for the financial independence of your dreams.
2: The Retirement Lifestyle Show is back. My name is Adrian Nicholson, and I'm joined with my co-hosts, Roshan Ngani and Eric Olson. We have another exciting episode for you all today, so we're just going to get right into it. The topic we're going to discuss today are frequently asked questions. And we're going to be tackling this topic today because hopefully our listeners and viewers have some questions on their minds or some concerns that we might have been talking about with our clients. And we're just going to share some frequently asked questions we've been receiving and hopefully there might be some overlap with some things that have been going on with your situation as well. And if there aren't, we're always happy just to have a discussion with you. Our information is in the show notes. So we're just going to kick it off today and go right into it, Roshan. What's something that you've been Asked frequently or something that's you've seen on the internet recently, or what are some things people are looking at today that they just have questions that need to be answered?
3: Well, one item I've been asked about really throughout the year, and I've got some more questions as as recently as last week is about I bonds. And I think this is a, a great uh thing people are looking at right now because with inflation being as high as it is, that is a good place for you to look to try to. Uh, do well with some of your some of your cash so i bonds right now are paying an annualized rate of nine point six two percent if you're interested or want to look into them further if you you go to the website treasurydirect.gov where you can buy i bonds we've also covered them before uh i think at least twice in our previous episodes we've talked about i bonds so i bonds are government bonds, There are series I savings bonds that you can get that that have a rate that is adjusted for inflation. So with what's been going on this year, inflation being uh, the hottest and most important financial topic right now in the United States throughout this year, that is driving everything with Fed action, I think that is uh, very astute for those that are thinking this is a place to look at for opportunities.
2: Yeah, I agree. Inflation's the talk of the town, so people are trying to beat it. But yeah, I definitely like how we started that off. What do you think, Eric?
0: Yeah, I I was just asking in terms of, um, people are asking about this, Roshan, and that, saying, how much can I invest? H- what do you tell them?
3: Yeah, so the cap right now is you can do 10000 per person per year. There's also a little bit of an, uh, you can put a little bit more in there if you, if you, are getting a tax return you can direct that to go directly into i bonds but it is it is per person so i do have clients where you know they're they're a couple with the young kid and they they went and got three of these i bonds you know two in the parents name one in the kids name so there there are ways to get a little bit more in there but the cap is about is uh ten thousand dollars
0: and I've got a couple of pieces of good news there too it's you can have a natural person such as you but you can also have your trust your living trust can uh, be a buyer that has an eligibility for another 10 grand if you have an LLC that also can be a buyer and so let you know, let's say between is, if you have a his and hers trust and there's a you know a married couple and you have an LLC there's $50,000 you could put in each year toward that not including your tax return uh, refund so now, what happens if you say I want to, I want
3: out? Yeah. So you've got to stay in there um, at least a year. If you cash it in before five years, you'll lose three months of interest. But if you hold it for longer than five years, you can take your money out, keep all your interest, and, and you're you're all set. And they'll earn interest for up to thirty years. So you've got a while. Well, you've got a while to make that decision, so to speak, as far as pulling out goes. But It's definitely worth noting that you know, you uh, uh, I would say look at this ideally for at least five years, and you really have can't look at it for less than one year because you don't have an option.
0: Mm -hmm. So it wouldn't be necessarily emergency fund money, but it might be let's say you're planning on doing some big home improvement project or purchasing a car three years, five years out. You could say maybe if it's yeah, we're not. There's no guarantee it's going to stay at 9.62%. But if it were to stay up at let's say the eight percent level or the six percent level, you give up a, a, a quarter's worth or three months' worth of interest. You've only given up a point a percent and a half to two percent. So you still, in those two examples, at eight percent, you still kept six that year. Or if it was at six, you still kept four and a half that year. So it's not like the the worst thing that's ever happened.
3: Well, I, and even even if it goes down to after just thinking about what the fed's policy is and their plans of getting inflation under control and so on. They're putting uh 2024 as the target. Even if you get two years with these, uh, or even a year and a half, because the rate does adjust every six months. It's every uh, October and um, uh, why can't I think of the month That's six months before it's at April and October. It adjusts every year. So, even if you go through just a you know, year and a half or a year of these almost 10% rates of return, if the rates come way down, you still are going to look at probably a good 4 to 5% average over a five-year time frame. Good stuff.
2: Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for starting us off with that one, Roshan. That's a really big one. It's going lead me into one of the frequently asked questions I've been getting, what to do with my excess cash flow. And Roshan just presented, that's an opportunity as well. You might want to consider looking at I-bonds if inflation's just something that you're extremely worried about right now and you're trying to figure out a way to get some type of return. But uh, this is a really good question. It can be a little complexity because it just boils down to what your situation is, what your cash flow is looking like, how much are you able to save. So there's really a lot to go into this. So this is where it'd be beneficial just to really have a conversation just to see where you're where you're at right now, but I could just give a few points to this one where a good one, and Eric mentioned this before, is just build up that emergency fund, that cash reserve that you have. That's a good place for you to really start if you have some extra money coming, in, coming into the door, whether this can help you out if an emergency comes up or just potential investment opportunities as well. There's a lot of things you can really do here with your excess cash flow. So building up emergency fund is definitely a top priority as well and then where you're looking to deploy extra funds once you have that build up, you can look at the three different buckets that are out there when it comes to investing, saving for retirement, or any short term or long term goals. So those three buckets are tax advantaged, tax deferred, and taxable. And all three are just creative ways that you can save to, one, either reduce your income or save for retirement. There's a lot of flexibility built in here. Do you guys want to touch on anything before I go deeper into these three buckets?
0: No, I'm eager to hear what you have to say.
2: Okay, awesome. So, again, if you have some leftover cash flow and you've built up that cash reserve that you have for those emergency funds, We look at three different buckets that you can invest in. And again, it's going to be different depending on what your situation is. So let's just say you're somebody that has to pay a lot in taxes every year and you're just trying to reduce that tax bill as much as you can and save. You might want to look at this tax deferred bucket that I mentioned. For example, this can be an IRA or a 401k where you can contribute to this account and lower your taxable income for this year. So that that might be a good strategy for you to use. And also, if you have 401k, your employer may offer you a match. So that's free money that you want to contribute so your employer can help contribute and match that as well. If you're somebody that's looking out way towards retirement and you really want to save a lot of money and do it in doing the most tax efficient way possible, if you feel like you're going to be in a, in a high tax bracket in retirement, you might want to look at a tax advantage bucket. For example, this could be a Roth IRA where you contribute to this account after tax, but the growth on it is tax-free. So when you start withdrawing from it in retirement, you don't have to pay taxes on it. So again, if you're somebody that's worried that you might be in a higher tax bracket when you're forced to, let's say, for example, start withdrawing money from your 401k and your IRA for required minimum distributions, having a Roth IRA to pull from might be very beneficial for you. Then the last bucket is a taxable account, and this is the more flexible account. This is one where you can create maybe an automatic savings where you have more flexibility to pull from this account. You have a short-term or maybe a mid-term goal that you have to get to. This one doesn't really provide too many tax benefits, but it's a way for you to invest in a whole bunch of different investment options so you can have your money work for you and grow so those are some potential ideas I have for those people that say, hey, I have a lot of, I might have some extra money coming through the door. What should I do with that? Yeah,
3: and you know, with, with uh, what's been going on in this market, if you've got a long-term time horizon and uh, a classic move, so to speak, would be dollar cost averaging. You, know, you Adrian, with your topic of excess cash flow, if you've got extra money every month, if you're continuing to buy as the market's going down, you're accumulating more shares, And then when things eventually uh, recover, you'll have um, more of those gains because you were buying more shares on the way down.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I just want to touch back again on that automatic saving piece, which is really key when it comes to cash flow. And you might not know where to start or what certain dollar amount to, to use, but just having that automatic savings built in can really highlight the number for you where Let's just say you start your automatic savings and you feel like every month you feel a little bit tighter and that might be too much high of a number, then you can just notch it down to you get a level that you're comfortable with where that money's kind of out of sight, out of mind and starting to work for you in the investing world.
0: Yeah, well, I I think that's good. I'm going to say a word also about just one other category. You you talked about the various tax treatments of it. I will also say... One area, if you have any sort of debt other than your mortgage, certainly, if you have any other sort of debt, if you've got free cash flow, I would just be encouraging you to put that money to work to reduce that debt.
3: And Eric, let me just ask you about this just to make mm-hmm. sure you're talking consumer debt, right? You had said besides your mortgage, right? What are your thoughts on cars, car notes as well? Would you put extra money towards paying those off?
0: Yes, I recognize that car notes, generally speaking, recently have had lower interest rates than the prevailing inflation rate. So, in at just a purely mathematical level, you may say, "Well, that's foolish," because the inflation effectively effectively is paying all of my, it's paying my uh, interest rate and then some. I'm actually I'm actually coming out ahead by virtue of the fact that I have a higher inflation rate than an interest rate. Well, that would be true if the cash that you then are not deploying into that, into that debt uh, is somehow being deployed at a level comparable to the prevailing inflation rate. That, that would be true. But if your cash is just sitting there anyway, and it's really not doing much for you, and this is a way at least it'll wipe out that interest cost and on top of that on top of that I do think that because life sometimes deals us an unexpected twist to the less that you have in terms of a carrying uh load on uh, as a burden on your ongoing cash flow is a is a healthy thing it's a useful thing and it's a freeing thing so it's it's at one level it's a psychological question at another level it's a mathematical question at another level it's a it's a preparing for the unexpected question but i would say yeah if you've got consumer debt certainly other than a mortgage uh, i would work on whittling that down if you have that spare cash
2: mm-hmm. yeah you got to be strategic too how i mentioned before i addressed that topic was it's going to be different for everybody and how you deploy that extra cash flow as efficient as possible is really going to help you out and can make your situation a lot better other than just kind of just finding whatever you can just uh, whatever works for somebody else just going that strategy might not fit yours so i definitely agree with all the points you guys are are sharing yeah
3: all right what's next Eric, I was going to pass it on to you uh, uh, to, to give us the next one.
0: Yeah, so lately I've been getting some questions from um, clients, actually, about structured notes. And um, it's partly been because they've had other experiences with them or they've heard about them and they're saying, would this be a good time for this? In other clients' cases, they're saying, I've never heard of it. So what I thought I'd do is is have a little conversation with you today and talk with you about what is a structured note and why might it be a useful thing to include as part of your overall portfolio so let's just begin with the sort of the the surrounding problem there's no question that in the recent weeks and months all of us have been watching the markets not just stock markets but also bond markets just really having a hard time of things sinking 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 in fact we've talked i think about how the first six months of 2022 were the worst six month start to a calendar year in the S&P since 1970, in the Dow Jones Industrial Average since 1962, in the NASDAQ ever, the Russell 2000 ever, the Barclays Aggregate Bond Index ever. So with that sort of an environment, would it be, might it be possible to find something that has the potential to go up, but not down? And the answer is, is that depending on the, the structured note that you might find, a structured note actually might be a candidate for that sort of a solution. So what is it? First of all, it's, an, it's a security issued by typically a bank or, or large financial institution, which says we're going to stand behind the promises made in this particular structure. Underneath the hood what we're going to do is to put together a bond or some bonds and some options to provide you with a very quote unquote structured set of possible outcomes. I'm going to I'm going to give you an example of one such one such structured outcome that some of my clients put into action on August 5th. This isn't available now so I don't have any concerns about you, um, you thinking, I'm trying to sell you this. I'm just using a, a real world example to describe one such instance of this. So the, on August 5th, what happened was, is that the, those that made this investment had only four possible outcomes. The first outcome was it would be that at some point before the end of the ride, the issuer, in this case, a large multinational um, financial institution, would go out of business or would have some such difficulty financially that they couldn't make good on the promise. And there, that's a possibility. I don't want to exclude it. But it's that's a remote possibility. And barring that happening, there are only three other possibilities. So possibility number one is that as of the first anniversary of that investment, August fifth of twenty twenty three. In this case, if the S and P five hundred was up by even one fraction of a percentage point, then the investor would would receive their investment back and a ten point four five percent interest payment. Period. Done. N- next. But
3: so if it's up anything, if
0: it's up, just got to be positive. As long as it's positive, it could be up one hundred percent and you'd only get 10.45%. It's very it's very predetermined at that moment what you would have received. But, but if on August 5th of 2023, the S&P 500 on a price level only, forget about total returns, on a price level only were lower than it had been on August 5th of 2022, then buckle up, you're in for a four and a half year ride from that point forward for, for a total of five and a half years. And you just wait and wait and wait. At the four and a half year mark after that date or five and a half years from when you started, now there's only two possibilities left. One is that the S&P 500 is down. If the S&P 500 is down by any amount or or down by 50%, it doesn't matter, you would receive, the investor would receive his or her money back. On the other hand, if the S&P 500 is up by any amount, then in this case, unlike at the first anniversary, it's not a fixed percentage payment. It is just that whatever by whatever amount the S and P five hundred is up, that is the amount that you receive in addition to receiving your capital back. Now, there's lots of other examples that one could cite, but this is just an this is an example of one design whose whose attribute that some of my clients found attractive at that point was, okay, you're telling me that I can put some money into the market and barring the collapse of this major financial institution, I will receive my money back as sort of a worst case. And there's a possibility that I would have 100% upside if it goes five and a half years on whatever the S&P 500 does. Okay, I think that sounds interesting, I'll do that. So. Here's an example of ways in which these creative use of these underlying tools that I mentioned, bonds and options, can produce an outcome for you that allows you to take a step that you might not otherwise want to take. For example, if I'd said, "Hey, do you just want to put some money in the S and P 500? I think five and a half years from now it'll be up," you might say, "Well, that might be true, (laughs) but what if it's not?" And then in that case, you you know, that, that might cause you to pause. To take that step but anyway there's there's a i'll i'm using this metaphorically millions of designs as many as the mind can conceive but this at least is one where when people are thinking i just can't stomach any further downturn this might be a solution there's there's a possible solution
3: yeah especially in uh you started that out with the numbers essentially every public market being down uh, this year. That's where I think the opportunity is is there. Uh, the other thing with the structured note that I think is very important, you said, is that it's whatever the mind can conceive. They can build these things uh, for you. And there are new ones every month, new opportunities every month that the various investment firms put out there.
2: That's interesting. And what are, what are like the cost dynamics to it, since there's so many out there, do you have to kind of shop around for the cost and just, is that one aspect of it too?
0: Well, in terms of the minimum investment amount or the underlying expenses of it?
2: Oh yeah, I guess both.
0: Okay, well, the minimum investments amount, investment amount will vary by the sort of design, but typically there these are issued with... Um, with some sort of prefabricated version to it. And there's just such a large appetite in some places for these sorts of things that you can do this for a thousand or $2,000 as as little as that. As far as the underlying costs are concerned, yes, there are indeed costs and those have to do with the options contracts and with the bonds and the people who assemble these, um, these structured notes, of course, are not doing it as a charitable activity. They're making a profit on it, but those, um, those outcomes that I told you already reflect the inbuilt costs. So, for example, if you said, hey, well, what if they they could do it in an entirely costless way? Maybe then at the one year anniversary rather than you getting ten point four five, you got 12 or something of that nature. but but the the defined outcome itself, as as defined in the way that I just um, explained it, is not then further reduced by underlying expenses.
2: Awesome! Thanks for sharing that, Eric. Excellent.
3: What other questions? Uh, uh, what other questions are you guys getting, or should I jump in?
0: Yeah, go ahead, jump in.
3: Well, so one of them that I've gotten is is just in light of what the market's doing, people are asking, "Well, am I okay? Right? Am I okay financially uh, with what's with what's happened?" And that goes back to what we frequently mention on on our show is revisiting your financial plan. So we do that as a uh, as a standard, typically with our clients, we update data and review what's been going on through our meetings, and that's been a, uh, a source of comfort for most people where they look at it and they say either, okay, I am okay, uh, is, the, is the response, or uh, it's not as bad as I thought. I've got, um, I can make minor adjustments now that will make me okay in the future. So I think there's a lot of value in that. Keeping your eyes on the prize, so to speak, looking at your plan and seeing um, how have these markets impacted me. And it, and it it, it it when I've ha- having had these conversations, as I said it's definitely been a place where people have found comfort. I've not had uh, many conversations where people were you know way ahead of schedule or on track for their goals, and now the market decline has caused them to need to shift their lifestyle completely.
2: Yeah, that is a common one I've been getting as well. And like you said, the plan aspect provides like a lot of comfort and just helps with just moving forward, not making any like changes or making minor adjustments if you need to. But again, that plan really can show what it's like moving forward and really just puts a lot of stuff in perspective what's going on right now. Because again, there's just a lot of volatility in the markets right now. There's a lot of like macro and economic data coming out and just a lot of stuff going on right now where you really need to focus in on your plan and let that be the driving factor.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, next topic then. Or do you want to keep exploring that a little further?
2: No, go go ahead. Uh,
3: Adrian, do you want to go with the earth next?
2: Yeah, so another common one that I've been getting recently are what are the main differences between exchange-traded funds and mutual funds? So I have four key points to this one that are things that people should really consider and look at that really show the difference between these two different investments because they tend to have some overlap and some things that make them different. So one of the main features that's different between an exchange-traded fund and a mutual fund is how the asset is managed. Typically, exchange-traded funds are usually passive investments that invest in a basket or pool of assets that gives an investor an exposure and more diversification across all these investments. Compared to a mutual fund, this is sometimes usually an active managed fund where it's similar where it invests you across a bunch of different investments. But there is sometimes buying and selling within the fund. So that's one big difference on how they are managed. Is there anything else that you guys want to put in on this piece on how exchange traded funds and mutual funds are managed?
3: Yeah, the big one that stands out for me is the term exchange traded funds means it's, it's traded on the exchange. You can buy and sell intraday. So at any time during while the market's open, you can buy and sell these things where mutual funds you're buying from the issuer. So if you buy a Vanguard or a Fidelity mutual fund, you're buying it from them. And you can typically only do that at the close of business, buy or sell every day. So I think that's a, another big difference between the two.
2: Yeah, that was my other point, but what you brought up too is the cost aspect too, that differentiates between exchange-traded fund and a mutual fund. Whereas we mentioned exchange-traded funds, you can buy and sell them throughout market hours, so this can sometimes lead to a commission that you have to consider when it comes to exchange-traded funds. Whereas mutual funds, the costs can vary depending on the type of share class you have because mutual funds tend to have different shares that you can invest in. But some of the common things that investors need to consider were mutual funds have transaction fees, distribution charges and operational costs that you have to look into as well. Is there anything that you guys wanna touch on with the cost aspect as well?
0: I wanna come back to your previous comment about passive versus active. I believe it is absolutely fair to say, as you did say, that uh, ETFs, exchange traded funds, have much more historically at least been uh, the passive instrument of choice uh, once they became firmly established as a, as a regular and widely understood tool and mutual funds sort of recognizing that edge that they had on the passive side, I think started to gravitate more toward sl- somewhat more active strategies. Another reason for that incidentally is that exchange-traded funds are essentially that the, what they own is fully transparent, whereas in a mutual fund, they don't have to report that except every 90 days so it can give the mutual fund manager who doesn't want to give away the secret sauce the ability to uh, disguise a little bit what is going on underneath the hood, whereas with an exchange-traded fund, that's not as easily possible. But having said that, after it became clear to some of the smaller entrants into the exchange-traded fund market that the passive strategy um, landscape was already dominated by some of the super large exchange trade fund houses like the, you know, I don't think I need to name them, um, but at this point they said, okay, well our way into this market then is to differentiate ourselves. And the way to differentiate ourselves is to go bring some more active strategies. So as a result, you've now started to see this emergence of even I'll call them three types. One is the purely passive market capitalization based approach. that was is the, the way that we normally think about an index fund. The next at the other extreme is uh, an active managed approach, but, w- but it's transparently active. And then the intermediate version is, is it's a rule-based active approach as opposed to a subjectively based active approach. Meaning they say this is how we select ex- we select the, uh, the components of this, um, this or the investments within the exchange-traded fund. You'll know in advance how it works, and uh, if you want that sort of that active algorithm as opposed to an active stock picking sort of approach, an active algorithm in your portfolio. Here's a way that you can access that that um, that maybe quantitative approach with a very low cost relative to the other sources that you might obtain it and what you pay for them. So on that basis, you, Adrian, you just saw me transition from active, passive, into the cost area, I am agreeing with you that there is oftentimes a cost advantage on the ETF side. How'd you like that as a transition?
3: That being said, though, guys, there are very expensive ETFs out there oh, as yes, well. Oh, yes, that's now, true. Right. So it's it, the landscape has changed to where I think there was a time period in the uh, late 90s into 2000s, 2010s, where you could in general say, ETFs came in as a low cost provider to take market share, whereas now you can have pretty much a, a low cost passive entrance is probably what ETF started as. And now you can say, well, all those general rules are out the door. You can get active management there. You can get high cost, low cost. They're they're really just an alternative or a competitor to mutual funds. And you've got to look into uh, each ETF further because those general rules definitely don't apply like they used to.
2: Yeah, and especially now, which leads me to my last point, the tax consideration as well. It's just going to be varied. where if we're going to take, let's just say, a passively managed ETF, there are going to be fewer transaction costs, which will help avoid taxes compared to a mutual fund where, let's just say, there's a lot of buying and selling can lead to more capital gain taxes for the investor.
0: Well, yes, it is. That is absolutely the case. It's interesting. The exchange traded fund lobby won some provisions uh, when they were first establishing these designs. And by the way, there are different designs. We we refer to them as as exchange traded funds as if they're all of one kind. But the truth is, is that some of them have patents on the way in which that they un, they manage the assets underneath, and and so in some cases they enjoy even further advantages from a tax standpoint. But the interesting design feature that ETFs generally share is the ability, instead of needing to sell positions, they can sometimes swap positions. And as a result, they, don't, they, they delay the realization of those, those gains, or for that matter, simultaneously the losses, though I, they, I don't see any reason that they'd want to they'd not realize some losses as a long-term strategy. But here's the other thing it's not the merely the behavior of the fund manager internal to the fund it's the behavior of the owners of that investment so other investors out there when another investor sells a mutual fund that has and says i want my money back what happens well the mutual fund manager has to then sell some positions to generate the cash necessary to pay that investor out You, meanwhile, are still an investor in the fund, you're a shareholder, and as a result, at the fund level, it realized those gains. And so at the end of the year, if you are still a shareholder of that fund, then you, like all other shareholders on a proportionate basis, are awarded, quote unquote, and I'm using that totally um, ironically and facetiously. You were awarded the benefit of that other person having triggered that gain that otherwise wouldn't have been triggered, and you get a you get a distribution of some either short-term or long-term capital gains that you then must uh, you must then pay taxes on. This is all assuming, incidentally, this is in a taxable account. Wouldn't apply if it's in a Roth or an IRA. Whereas in the ETFs case, because the mechanism of of forming and dissolving these units of the exchange trade fund it differs substantially then that other behavior the the other investor's choice to sell that etf doesn't produce for you that tax consequence
3: yeah that is definitely going back to the point adrian made of tax efficiency uh, let's go on to the next topic next frequently asked question um uh eric i'll let you take take this one next all right, well, I, so I, I've i got a couple more, but maybe this is the one that
0: I think has been, um, it, it is a passion of mine. And it has to do with this, here we're three quarters of the way through 2022. We are near the lows of the year for 2022. In general, if you're thinking about what should I or should I not do any sort of Roth conversion in 2022, Boy, oh boy, have you been handed a gift to be able to do that potentially at the lowest moment of the year? Uh, if you if you do that now, it is what you might be saying, Eric, what are you talking about? Why is it advantageous to think about a Roth conversion when markets are lower? The reason is is that let's just let's think about this as the a, a share of stock XYZ. You all you own in your portfolio is one and only one investment. It's XYZ. By the way, this is purely hypothetical. That would be that would be utter folly to do so but let's just use that as an example xyz let's say at the start of the year was were, you had a you had 10,000 shares and they were each worth $100 meaning you had a million dollar portfolio of xyz now let's say xyz has come down 25% you still have 1000 shares of it but instead of 10,000 shares of it i mean to say but instead of it being $100 a share it's now $80 a share well, what if you then went ahead and sold? let's say you you will say that instead of converting um, eight hundred thousand that's in your portfolio still, you're going to convert just as an example, this is purely for math purposes, you're going to convert one tenth of your portfolio uh, from an IRA to a Roth IRA. So here, since you have ten thousand shares of it, you sell on the basis of we're talking about one tenth of the portfolio, You sell a thousand shares of it at $80 a share. You just generated $80,000 of sales. You take the proceeds of that sales, of that sale, convert them over to a Roth and go in your Roth IRA now, buy back those same thousand shares of XYZ at $80 a share, it costs you $80,000. Well, Had you done the same thing at the beginning of the year when it was $100 a share to convert 10% of your portfolio, it would have cost you, you would have had to sell $100,000, move $100,000 from your IRA to your Roth to achieve that result. Remember that you might be saying, Eric, I still don't get it. Why is that advantageous? It's because, here's the the critical piece in this explanation, it's because the $100,000 that you would have converted at the start of a year at the start of the year you would have paid taxes income taxes on that full $100,000 whereas if you did that at the market low when it's 20% down you're now paying taxes on only $80,000 of that conversion you just cut your tax bill for that conversion by at least 20% so now you might be saying, well, I, yeah, but I only put $80,000 into the Roth, not 100. Yes, you did, that's true, but you put in the same 1,000 shares into your Roth that you would have done at the beginning of the year. You still have 1,000 shares of XYZ as a final result in your Roth now, but it only cost you $80,000 of, of taxes on $80,000, not taxes on $100,000. To accomplish that, accomplish that result, and when the markets come back, and I'll use when, not if, when the markets come back, then you'll ha- enjoy all of that recovery for that thousand shares in your Roth, not in your IRA. So if that, I, if you've said Eric, that's still really hard to follow. Uh, I'm sorry. Find our contact information on our on our uh, show page. That's RetirementLifestyleShow.com. And reach out to one of us, and we'll go ahead and walk you through that that explanation and think about it more. Instead of such a hypothetical case like X Y Z is the entirety of your portfolio, we can help you in a little bit longer format evaluate that and see why doing Roth conversions when markets are down is the is absolutely the best time from from a tax standpoint to do
3: that. And just to highlight one thing that you said, Eric, when that. XYZ recovers in your Roth, that's tax-free, right? So you're you're paying the tax after the after the twenty percent loss in this in this example, and then you're getting that recovery in that tax-free bucket, um, similar to what Adrian had said earlier about the different tax uh, tax buckets that are out there.
0: Yes, and I'm going to highlight one more piece of this. Why am I just sort of pressing on you to? to think about doing a Roth conversion this year. We also are under favorable tax rates introduced in the uh, 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that uh, prevail this year. They've been in place since 2018, but we have only four calendar years left, this one included. So if, if you're talking about calendar year conversions, it may be to your advantage to get more of those accomplished in 2022, three, four, and five, than afterward.
3: Yep, you wanna make sure you get it at these lower, lower tax rates. So in your example, you're doing the conversion at a lower value after the market declines, at a lower tax rate, because the rates are going to go up in just a few years, and then that that recovery would then be on the uh, tax-free side of things. So it looks like there's definitely at the very least an opportunity worth exploring. Gentlemen, I know we've got a couple more. We are, we are running a little bit short on time. Uh, Adrian, do you want to go over yours quickly, or should we go Eric? I know you had one that will be fairly involved
2: uh, as well. Yeah, we can move on to Eric. I covered all my frequently asked questions.
0: Okay, I'll make mine short. So I have a lot of clients that have been getting letters from their long-term care insurance companies lately. This is five years, ten years, and sometimes longer into their policy saying... Guys, we're so sorry, but not a lot of your peers are lapsing their policies, and the costs have been running so high. We once upon a time we thought we could deliver these benefits to you with premiums at such and such a rate that you've been paying, but it's just not working for us. So we had to go to your state insurance commissioner and just explain our situation, and your state insurance commissioner has agreed to allow us to go ahead and and uh, elevate these premiums a little bit. So we're gonna have to do that here, and we're gonna. Because it's not a trivial amount, we're going to implement this over a three-year period, but it's going to be you know X number of dollars or X percent higher per month that you're going to wind up paying for these same benefits. Now, if you're thinking, "Oh my goodness, I don't want that, to," that's such a high premium cost. I'm not sure I want to do that. If you want to, the this so the letter says. You could go ahead and do some give backs on the benefits that you've been giving. So, for example, you've been promised. For example, you could shorten the number of years or months that the benefits would pay out, or you could reduce the inflation um, component, the inflation adjusting component, or, or eliminate it altogether. Or you could reduce the monthly benefit that we would pay out to you, blah, 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 or some combination of these things. And so these clients are saying, Eric, I'm just really thinking I'm going to be squeezed by these amounts. It just seems so outrageously high. Should I do this? My answer, of course, isn't there's not a one size fits all answer on this, but it is this that you have to think about the fact that the the question that you're addressing now is not would I have paid these premiums way back when I started this policy 10 years ago or five years ago or whatever the case might be. The question is if I walked into the long-term care insurance store today and they told me that I would get the benefits that are, that are currently promised to me if I started a policy today and at the rates that they're offering me, would I do it? And I would say, insofar as in that 10-year period, <laughs> you've aged 10 years you're 10 years closer to that date at which you're likely to do it. You're you're likely to need that care or said differently. You have 10 fewer years of paying money out than you did when you began the policy 10 years before the math is different now that while that might not have been a great decision to pay that premium load 10 years before it could be an awesome decision to pay it today. So let me give you one just quick example one of my clients and I were having this conversation on Saturday morning, and uh, I we talked it through. And what it worked out was that in this client's case, the the effective cost was that if the client was willing to pay an extra an extra seven hundred dollars per year for this policy, they would receive the benefit of it. But in this case, this client's case now, given how much time has passed since this client this client obtained that policy if we use age 80 as a common age of inception this client has 6 more years to pay 6 more years to pay $700 a year i don't by the way this is not a prediction that this client's going to need this care starting precisely at age 80 it's just using the sort of the logic of this if that's a characteristic age at which The inception of benefit often begins. Then, if six more years paying seven hundred dollars a year, let's just do the math on that. Six times seven is four thousand two hundred dollars. Four thousand two hundred dollars in this case gives the preserves what if she wants to keep her benefit or pardon me, keep her premium level at it is she would she would cough up about twenty five percent of the benefit in her her policy meaning she would cough up $70,000 worth of a pool of benefits. I would say, and as I said to this client, I won't use her name, I'm just going to make up a name, Jane. Jane, if you could put $4,000, you walked into the long-term care insurance store today and they offered you to pay them, you could pay them $4,200 in exchange for a pool of long-term care benefits that was $70,000 large six years from now, would you think that was a good trade? Swapping four thousand two hundred dollars of your money for seventy thousand dollars of their benefit pool in six years, I think you would. Oh, well, you might say, "Well, wait a second, Eric. I'm not sure I'll need it." Okay, let's let's say that there's only a ten percent chance that you might need that benefit. Let, in other words, let's say it differently: that instead of it being seventy thousand that's waiting for you six years from now, it's only seven thousand. Would you still trade four thousand two hundred dollars? over these next six years for that $7,000 $7, benefit? I think you probably would. So when, in other words, it's, it's not a question of what should she have done for 16 years or 20 years. It's what, what does she do for this last six-year uh, period? The benefit-cost ratio has really substantially shifted in her favor because she's so much later into this policy. So again, if you're going, Eric, that was so confusing. Well, that means I'm not a great communicator. But it also might mean that the topic warrants that you go ahead, go to our website, find dot show.com, find our contact information, and say, Reach out to us and say, Would you explain this to me? Because I got that same letter and I'm trying to decide what to do. And we will help you make that analysis.
3: Yeah. And I think the concept, though, is, um, What's your cost versus what's your benefit uh, going to be your possibility of benefit? I think that holds holds true to everybody. And as we mentioned earlier, um, uh, as a topic that I was getting, people about looking at their plan, I think you can't make that decision in a vacuum. You've got to look at everything else going on in your personal financial situation. So it is a, a complicated one, which uh, doesn't make it easy to just describe um, uh, on a podcast or even if you're watching on YouTube right now. Gentlemen, there's, that's a lot of questions we've all been been getting today, uh, and I'm sure we, we will have more, so we'll do another episode like this. For those of you listening, please send us your questions. They will likely make it into an episode in the future. Uh, thank you again for joining us and listening. This has been another episode of the Retirement Lifestyle Show. Please like, subscribe, give us five stars, tell your friends and family about us, and we'll be back next week with another great episode.
1: Schedule a conversation with Roshan, Adrian, or Eric today at RetirementLifestyleshow.com. Roshan and Eric are certified financial planner practitioners. They, along with Adrian, are investment advisor representatives and serve clients across the U.S. with financial planning and investment advice through RTA Wealth. If you found this show helpful, gain knowledge, or enjoy the time you spent with us, tell your friends and leave us a five-star review. This will help others discover the show. To access our show notes, to download any of the tools mentioned in today's podcast, to ask us a question or to schedule a conversation, go to retirementlifestyleshow.com. All opinions expressed by podcast hosts and guests are solely their own. While based on information they believe is reliable, neither Arete Wealth nor its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, nor do their opinions reflect the opinion of Arete Wealth. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and should not be regarded as specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. The show hosts offer investment advice through RTA Wealth Advisors, LLC, and SEC Registered Investment Advisor, and securities through RTA Wealth Management, LLC, Member, FINRA, SIPC, and NFA. Finally, our music is The Chance by Jason Shaw in Audionotics, It's part of the YouTube Audio Library and it's licensed under a Creative Commons license. I am Ray Voices. Thank you for listening.